0: Hi, I'm Tom. Welcome to the Malcolm Tents. This is episode three, if I'm counting correctly. Um, and this is a podcast all about content.
1: And I am Sean Blander. And we are very excited to come with the trilogy and have episode three.
0: <laughs> I wonder if uh, people are going to have to go back and kind of re-listen to these podcasts in a different order like Star Wars uh, at some point. This is in really time. episode we'll six. Back and... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Um, So the theme of today's episode is how content works. We're going to take a quick look um, under the hood, uh, kind of some process stories, I guess, um, some of the mechanics of how content flows on the web um, and and where it goes. Uh, I think it'll become kind of clear what we're getting at as as we go. So let's just dive in, I guess. Um, Sean, you want to take it away?
1: Right. So the stories we're going to discuss and frame today all kind of have this higher theme or idea that the way things are published and read and the way content works online is very opaque. Uh, not everyone can always see the whole field and it's resulting in some weird externalities and usually bad content and bad behavior. So the the first one is an article that appeared in the outline by John Christian titled bribes for blogs. And it, it essentially recapped, uh, that contributors from places like Mashable and Inc. and business insider, um, Writers for those platforms, or those sites, admitting that they took money from marketers to include links in their posts, right? So it's a lot of, but all those sites have very, paid nothing or or little, and many of them don't even vet some of the posts that go on their site. Somewhere like um, Forbes, or right? has this open contributor policy that once you're approved, you can publish away your heart's content. Um, so it leaves a lot of room for nefarious behavior. Uh, it'd be like me getting. A chance to write on Huffington Post and then soliciting that opportunity to marketers, offering that if they pay me hundreds of dollars, I will include some link in my story. Uh, right. So Tom, I shared this with you and you said, "Duh, <laughs> of course." much. that? <this> <laughs> um, so tell me your reaction.
0: Well, uh, first things first. This is a this is a really well written and researched post. I got nothing against the post. Uh, more so, I think there was an undercurrent here that was missed, which is. That this is very, very old news to the SEO industry. And in fact, that um, something that was barely mentioned at all in the story is that a lot of this. Arbitraging of mentions uh, is is actually about links. Is actually about uh, kind of old school paid link building, Um, and you know people have been engaged in this for a very long time. Uh, What I think is interesting is a little bit like affiliate marketing, which has been around for a very long time, but then suddenly kind of becomes new again when the media, the mainstream media industry, kind of cottons on. Um, There's something similar going on here, which is that you know this is an outrageous topic for anyone who. Takes journalism and media seriously and has you know been to J, J school or, or any of those things. Um, for somebody who just hangs out on the web and certainly anyone in kind of digital marketing, this is just you know another day at the content farm, right? Um, uh, and I, I think there's an interesting point here, which is that almost all of these sites we're talking about have this open contributor um, platform approach, and it's really not surprising that people are shilling. Mentions and links within their content. it's just another place to write content, and the people that are that are selling these links by and large are not journalists. They're not uh, people who abide to any kind of journalism code of ethics. They've not been to J school. They are not quote unquote media people. They are think fluencers and marketers and, um, you know, digital marketing managers and uh, all these kind of people who are trying to just, you know, hustle around for links. And, um, you know, frankly, uh, it's not exactly something I'm proud of. But, uh, you know, back in 2010 2011 uh we we, there's a lot of people doing this and i was one of them um you know we didn't do it in any way widespread and i think as soon as we as soon as we got our toes wet we realized what we were doing and realized how dirty it was and kind of backed away from it um but but this this is not new um and and in fact uh you know we'll post a link in, in the show notes but um there was an example back in 2013 um, in the UK, where a whole bunch of newspaper sites in the UK were found to be selling links. And there was kind of a small group of, uh, actually in that instance, far more nefarious um, journalism type folks, This was kind of before the whole open contributor platform movement. Uh, And they were selling links in major uh, mainstream newspapers uh, in the UK and Google found out about it and there's was a whole hoo-ha. but then it died down and it went away and then this story comes out and it's kind of to me it feels a lot like a kind of like oh so what um that isn't to, to kind of brush over the seriousness of it um but this isn't new
1: right and there's kind of two there's there's the very rational seo reason right i have more links to my product it will come up higher in google but there is the the thing that i think bothers me more is the credibility that people are kind of stealing from these publications. So I think if you ask someone that worked at, let's say, entrepreneur, there's probably there's paid staffers, paid reporters, who probably do a great job, journalists look sound, fact checked, edited. Um, and it appears under the entrepreneur masthead. And then right next to them are these, you know, open contributors who aren't vetted, um, aren't, uh, aren't edited, and they're selling links and it's appearing alongside the sound journalism. And if I was on the staff of one of these publications, I'd be furious. I just, I,
0: I can't. But, but, but hang on. But like, but, the, the, I, I think what bothers me here most is this idea that selling links is uh, a step too far, but writing content on a contributor platform and showing your own brand is fine. Like, most of these open contributor platforms are garbage. Like, no offense. Right. I mean, well, I guess a little bit of offense to most of these platforms. Um, but like, uh, you know, you talk about entrepreneur. Yes, there are staff members of entrepreneur that write real content, and it's probably good content, but I don't read it because I don't read entrepreneur because it's covenant crap. Every time, I, every time I see a link in my feed, it's just low quality content. Um, and a lot of it is contributor content. And my brain has been trained to ignore those links. Same with Forbes. Um, same with Huffington right. Post. And so I, the idea yeah. that... We have somehow kind of crossed a line by, you know, like I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that there was never much journalistic integrity in the first place. So to suddenly, right. to suddenly have our, in, our arms kind of, you know, up in the air and be outraged about the idea that there are links involved in them, you know, uh, I don't really see the difference. Like obviously the links piece is interesting from an SEO perspective, and um, if this was an SEO podcast, we could talk about that a little bit more, but. Uh, you, you know, I just don't really see what the deal is. It's like, you know, of course this is bad content. You had people shilling their own brands, writing it for free, who don't have journalism backgrounds, and you're lightly editing it, or in some cases not editing it at all. Um, what did you expect? You know, um, and I, I so, but there's another interesting piece here, which is that you, you know this does devalue the overall. Um, brand of a publication. You know, we talked about the, the the brand of a content site before, Sean, but it's something that I think is important. And I think that it's a real issue. Um, you know, when you're chasing page views, it can be very alluring to go and build these influencer networks and open content platforms. But at some point, you have to kind of stop and, and really understand what you're doing. And, and, and also invest in quality moderation and editing. If you don't do that, then you're going to run into exactly this problem.
1: Right. Um, you're a good use case, right? Like you are kind of one of the people who should be interested in Entrepreneur Magazine, right? In like, that's, that's, yeah, in theory, but you've been trained the is so solely in your mind that when you look at it, you just go, you know what, I'm not gonna, I'm not even gonna bother. Yeah. And I'm sure there was a time when they opened up this platform to all these contributors, and the page spiked, and the social media mentions spiked, and they took it to some editorial meeting and said, like, look at these numbers, it's amazing. And everyone was like, great, thumbs up, let's keep doing this. And I as the years go on, it's going to be very clear that that traffic is going to be junk traffic. Um, The people reading it aren't the kind of people who are going to subscribe, it's going to be a lot of passerby people who should be loyal to that brand are not going to be loyal to that brand. And I I, if you're one of the people that are being paid to produce the quote unquote, real journalism, it's got to be tremendously frustrating, you know, and it's, it's one thing to be what I'll call transparently shitty <laughs> if if you know if you're a marketer writing something on the site and you're saying i'm a marketer and this is what i'm marketing i can live with that i don't want to read it but i understand it's the it's the kind of payola aspect where i'm not telling you what i'm doing and i'm using your brand's credibility to make me money i think that's what annoys right. me
0: right but you also have a journalism back i mean you're much more of a kind of purist than i am i guess um in in that sense you, you know what i think is an interesting uh point to pick bring up here is um linkedin had one of the first kind of open contributor uh, platforms right where linkedin kind of right started a, right. like a media property and they had people like richard branson and obama and all these kind of you know like real big names writing on the platform in a kind of invite only but uh contributor platform model um and then they started to open it up wider and wider but as they did so they also lost the idea that they were a media platform and instead turned into a social network um, like no one right. would be outraged that people are selling links in their tweets. I mean, some people can be outraged about that, but like, you know, people do that all the time. Right. Um, uh, I don't, but, uh, people do it all the time. Um, but, uh, but, <laughs> but, 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 you know, when you look at a social network, the responsibility for the individual content sits with the person that wrote it. When you're trying to be a media property, the responsibility for the content sits is kind of a shared responsibility between both the writer and the platform. Or the publication. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what, what LinkedIn did was kind of, they kind of gave up on being a media publication instead said, we're not a social network. Anyone can write content and you use your responsibility to write whatever you want. If it's good, your audience will respect you. And if it's not, then they won't. Um, and I think that's kind of the end game for a lot of these contributor networks is to really turn into a social network and just say, just give up on the idea that the, the business insider brand is being attached to the content that's being written by these contributors. Um, I, I, I think that's kind of the, um, the the end game.
1: So what you're saying is their their long term game is to compete with the largest companies and platforms in the world and hope to come. Well, out I, just,
0: I, I don't want to come out on top, but I think it's. I mean, I mean, I think that's. I mean, LinkedIn <laughs> did it, right? I mean, LinkedIn built a social network off the off the back of that contributor network, right? I, I think that was um, when you go when you rewind um, what, like four or five years, I think it was um, ago when they really made that push. I think they did it. I think they executed almost flawlessly. Um, now you, you can argue about LinkedIn being a garbage fire, just like every other social network, but um, it, they did a good job. You know, they they built the hype. They built the prestige of writing on LinkedIn and then they opened it up wider and wider and then they backed away from calling it a media brand. And now we have LinkedIn, which is actually a, uh, a healthy, growing, you know, uh, popular social network for posting content, um, uh, much as, you know, we might not like that fact. Um, it's true. Um, there, there, there is an, uh, another interesting piece here, though, and I, I think one, there's an undercurrent that kind of gets lost when we when we get outraged about this, which is that um so, 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 I'll give you an example. Uh, I've got a couple of clients of mine who are building uh, content assets. You know, they're writing stories with the aim that uh, media publications will pick it up, right? And they want to do this for links. They want to do it for SEO benefit. They also want to do it for some secondary benefits around right. brand. And, What's
1: an example?
0: Like, like. like uh, would I'm like not going to give a real example, but like, let's say they survey um, one. Well, they survey millennials about their student loans, um, and then they go to a publication they say, hey, we have some new data. Uh, you know, 80% of uh, millennials are planning on paying back their student loan by the time they're 30. Right. It's a story, right, Okay. And then more, and so they pick a story, they write up a, a press release and an article, maybe have a little, like, little graphic in there, not quite an infographic, but some kind of visual. And they picture it someone like... Um, uh, yeah, someone like Forbes or, or something like that, right? And Forbes go, and a, a real staff writer at Forbes who is still in the business of journalism looks at it and says, "Hey, that is interesting. I'm going to write a story about it." They write a story about it. They give a link back to credit the source. Um, everyone's happy. What I think we, what I think is missed here is that when you like the in in today's media landscape, you know, you, you've done a thing that looked like. Something that used to work, right? You, you, quote unquote, you've done some PR or you know, you've done some marketing or you've done some uh, branding, whatever whatever label you want to attach to it. You, you've done some kind of work that used to be valuable, but in today's landscape, that article that that random staff writer staff writer um, put up that links to you is going to get read by like a hundred people, like 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 any given article <laughs> on on and even a very very popular, well-read site. Is gonna get a vanishingly small number of page views, right? It's an ugly truth, but even someone like the Guardian and New York Times, you you, you look past the, the homepage, if it doesn't make it to the homepage, um, and it doesn't blow up for some kind of viral whatever. Every article gets a vanishingly small number of page views, um, and 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 so then you have to ask yourself, uh, as a kind of a when you look at this whole problem from a marketing perspective rather than a journalism uh, perspective. You have to ask yourself, like, why are we even doing this in the first place? Like, what what kind of content is actually useful here? Um, and you know, when you actually discount the value of the link itself, which is something that is increasingly true from an SEO perspective, uh, what's left, right? What what is left from that from that random mention in a really? random media site that really? got very small page, very very small number of page views?
1: Yeah, I used to. Um, do some editorial consulting, and I used to ha- push back on people that, you know, executives at companies think, it's still in terms of prestige, and are like, oh, what media companies are we mentioned in, or what blogs were we quoted in, and it takes a lot of work to convince people that it's better to do the slow, methodical work of building up your own brand and voice, most times, not every time, but a lot of times, rather than chasing these one-off links that'll get you hundreds of page views, so then you can turn around and say you've been well, in um, something I like mean,
0: I agree, except that I think the one-off media mentions can absolutely still, you know, change a business overnight. It's just that the structure of influence has changed, right? It's no longer that you want a link from the New York Times in a in a in a story. I'd much rather get Tim Ferriss to write about me in a blog, in a blog post, right? Like if Tim Ferriss wrote a blog post and and you know called right. out something that one of my clients did, I think that would have a much much more dramatic impact. Um, you know, that audience would take action and, and remember that mention and follow the links and um, so on in a way that a random New York Times article wouldn't. And so I think, but obviously that's hard, right? Like how are you going to get Tim Ferriss to talk about you? Like that's not an easy problem. So I think, I think it was kind of a confluence of, hey, we kind of got lazy. Uh, everyone from both on the agency side and in, on uh, the executive side, everyone is kind of content to chase these empty media mentions. And and I think that's a, that's a real systemic problem that, that we're yeah, going to yeah, have yeah. to address.
1: Yeah. It's like everyone else is doing things just to turn to the person next to them and say like, look, I'm doing it. Right. It's like the marketers writing the post just to like, be like, yes, I'm doing marketing. And the brand's getting their mention to say, oh, look, we got mentioned, but like, Perfect. no, one's actually reading. No, one's actually caring. It's like this weird right, puppet right. theater thing happening. Um, Anyway, um come, yeah, go to the so next this is, What um, else are we thinking about?
0: This is a blog post uh, I want to call out um, from uh, Jenny Lawson, uh, a.k.a. the blog s, um, who is, uh, I'll, I'll admit, not somebody that I knew about until recently. She just came across my, my Twitter feed. Um, somebody was posting an article she wrote, and it's a really small um, article, but it has a very, very deep point. Um, and the article was titled, Hi, I Still Exist, You All. And she basically says, it's come to my <laughs> attention that uh and I'm paraphrasing here, she says it's come to my attention that uh you know people on Facebook uh think that I've stopped blogging. Uh the truth is that I haven't stopped blogging. It's just that when I post links to my blog on Facebook, the algorithm doesn't show them to anyone. And she she goes on to, to kind of um run a run a little test where she she posts a Facebook update that has a link in it to her blog, um, and it gets 4.4 thousand likes. Uh and she posts a link. Uh, but posts an update on Facebook without a link in it, and it gets twelve thousand likes. Um, and yeah. yeah, yeah, and and, and, and yeah. You, you know the the this is obviously not a statistically controlled sample. Blah 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 blah. Um, but what I think is interesting here is um, when you consider the structural impacts on how we consume content and the algorithms that shape how we consume content, it's very difficult to address these questions head on. And so we are we are left looking for little case studies and little kind of little bits of evidence that lie around like this um, to really help point us in the direction of, of how deep do these biases go and, and what exactly are the structural impacts. Um, wh- wh- and one of the things that really struck me, uh, it really struck home reading this, um, not only have I had this experience myself, um, I, I wrote a blog post uh, called The Consultant's Grain a couple of months back that, that I really put a lot of work into more than I do normally on my blog posts. And I don't normally post my blog posts to Facebook. I don't normally use Facebook, but, uh, I, I posted it on Facebook kind of saying, you know, I don't post here often, but here's a post I worked hard on. I think you might like it. And it got like two likes and, and, uh, y- y- you know, meanwhile, wow. I can post an update about, you know, brunch and it'll get, you know, 25 comments or whatever. Um, and so I've experienced this myself. Um, but, but then there was kind of a juxtaposition that really struck me and, and, it, you know, my immediate reaction to this is like, oh, well, Facebook doesn't like links, right? There's kind of an immediate reaction to that, which is like, well, that kind of makes sense. Facebook is trying to make you post photos and status updates and you blah, blah, blah. But then that's not true because actually Facebook loves links, right? The whole We wouldn't be in this whole political um, situation and talking about the Russian influence in the election and so on if you know, links on Facebook wasn't a huge thing. Um, and so it really got me thinking. Uh, you know, how deep does this bias against indie sites go? Right, like if I have an independent blog, right, Facebook knows very, very little about tomcritchler.com or SeanBlander.com or theBlogS.com, right, and they're not. These sites are not on, not on their algorithmic radar. They're not the New York Times, they're not Fox News, they're not these other sites. Um, We haven't done the work to kind of build up the algorithmic signals around them. And so Facebook knows very little about them. So when I post a link to an unknown URL on Facebook, um, I I, I can kind of understand why the algorithm might not want to show it to people. Um, But what does that mean for indie content? What does that mean for the open web? There's kind of lots of implications here. It raises more questions um, than than answers, but I just found it very provocative.
1: Right. With all of the, you know, propaganda or kind of nefarious things being shared on Facebook, some of the backlash was saying, hey, Facebook should only let, quote unquote, like legitimate sources post on Facebook. And right. this is the other side of that, where the blog S isn't, quote unquote, legitimate. It's her personal blog. She had something important or valuable to say that I'm sure the people who liked her and her page would want to read. And it was, for some reason, suffocated. Now, we're not sure it's, right. we're never going to be sure why, but I think a good hunch is that, like you said, the algorithmic signals weren't built around her site and that's it gets really scary as, you know, for someone like you and me, like we're not, we don't have the leverage of the New York Times brand behind us to come barreling into Facebook, right? We're, do, we're building these small little media companies and, and and brands and it's kind of like our backs against the wall if we're going to try and... Yeah, I I think there's
0: kind of two big Insidious effects. One is against indie content, kind of quite explicitly, like you just said. But the other is, on the other end of the spectrum, all of the big players are all trying to look like each other, right? They're all trying to follow exactly the same playbook so that they can, you know, basically please the algorithms. Um, You know, I'm sure that they don't think about it quite so explicitly, but it's true. It's, you know, everyone is, is trying to look like... The thing that Facebook wants to reward, which I think is just a, a very kind of insidious shaping of of dialogue, of discourse, um, and really just kind of you know, I mean, it really it 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 quietens a lot of uh, alternative chatter, um, and and I think it's it's, a, it's an impact of the filter bubble in a way which isn't necessarily you know the the filter bubble is kind of a concept is traditionally thought about as only showing you things that you already believe in right or kind of narrowing your worldview to things you're already biased towards liking but this is kind of a different kind of filter bubble where instead it's it's only showing you things that look a certain way it's it's, it's almost like a um this might be a stretch too far for the um for the for the um uh, analogy but it's almost like kind of uh, racial profiling for for content it's kind of like facebook is like you know i'm gonna let uh a a content that looks a certain way through the algorithms and content that doesn't look a certain way is just going to have a harder time
1: and and you know we we wanted to take this episode to talk about how content works and this is an example where we see the output of something but we we have no idea why this is the case we have none there's no one to ask there's no way to figure it out unless you know uh, Jenny, the blogger who wrote this, or me, or you, just bombard Facebook with a bunch of different things. But to your point, the biases of the platform end up affecting the content. That's why we have nine thousand copies of tasty videos, right? It's because that's what works. That's what gets published. There was a, a phenomenon a few weeks, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, which may not even be in in effect anymore. But it's um, pictures. Posts with pictures are being downplayed in exchange for posts with video. So what people were doing was creating video slideshows of pictures and embedding them in Facebook and Facebook recognized it as a video. And people were proving with pretty, pretty reliably that it was doing better. And there was a brief period of time where we all got these terrible, like slammed together videos, just so people could get the engagement that they that they're after. And it just results in this,
0: right? I, I mean, you, you, the, the point that this stuff is very unknowable and, and opaque. is um, is a very important problem. It's very difficult to tackle. Um, there's really no good solutions, um, and, and I think that it's we're going to we're going to talk about it more. We're going to try and find ways to fight back, but um, ultimately, it's it's just a a kind of a very it's a symptom of, of the modern web. And and I think ultimately, you know, it's a little bit similar. Like the analogy to the real world would be, you buy you buy a, a can of Coke off the shelf, and you have zero visibility into the supply chain that got that kind of coke you, right? Like the, the the unknowability of the ingredients, right. the manufacturing process, the ethics, the logistics, the environmental impact, and so on. And instead, you have to outsource all of that kind of ethical responsibility to uh, the system, um, you, you know, to to uh, the FDA, and uh, or maybe not the, um, yeah, it's the FDA, right, that regulates the stuff. Um, uh, and yeah, the, the, yes. the, the, um, the FDA and, and so on. They obviously have their own weaknesses and biases and you can't rely on them 100%, but um, there is a certain level of kind of assumed responsibility and compliance that comes with picking a can of Coke off a shelf in a in a, in a store. Um, and, and I think what we're hopefully going to end up with at some point will be some kind of similar oversight or um, structures that exist to... I don't want to say regulate these people, because that's a, 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 a very specific meaning, but more so to help us understand the, the, where these things have come from and, and, and how they function. Um,
1: I, I, I entirely agree. I, like That's coming. I think it's going to come right. 10 years from now, not two years from now, but it's, I, I'm pretty sure it's coming. I, I, I wanted to push on another part of this that talking it out made me think about, which is Google had a similar problem in its early days, right, people would find some sort of mechanism for gaming it and people still do for sure, but it was much more explicit. I remember in the early days of the blogosphere, you know, reading articles about just do this one thing and I can prove it boosts you up and then Google would learn its lesson and then penalize it. And it was this always cat and mouse game, which to me seems to stabilize from a user perspective almost all the time when I Google things, I get high quality results. Why is that possible, something like Google and proving difficult um, for Facebook? I
0: I think I'd push back a little bit. I'm not sure that Google is – I I think Google is better. I think Google has much more carefully uh, kind of – well, firstly, they've had more experience with it. Their core, their core business has been around this problem for much longer than it has for Facebook, and so they've gotten a lot better at it and a much more, much more nuanced um, at it. Their algorithms, certainly, kind of on search and content, are frankly just just light years ahead of what Facebooks are. Um, but the problem still exists, right? Um, you know, let, let's take take like for example like a like an author right like italo calvino is one of my favorite authors and you know, mm-hmm. the italian author um, you know passed away i don't know maybe in the 70s or 80s um, and when you google him you get very high quality results in the sense that you get his books on amazon you get the wikipedia page about him you maybe get um, a profile of him in the paris review or maybe a long form article from the new yorker um, but when you stop and think about it, um, and, and if you only looked at those results, you might think those are high quality. But what you don't see is the content that is also high quality that doesn't look like mainstream content, right? Like, what is the kind of long-form research same. Uh, paper that was, that was you know, on some kind of Harvard EDU right. blog that was written in 1995, that is actually, you know, some of the kind of best content about Italo Calvino is never going to show up on page one for Italo Calvino, right? Um, now, you can still find it if you dig hard enough and if you put in the right search queries and so on, but this bias absolutely still still exists within Google. It's just a little bit harder to see. And 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 also, like I said, Google have just done a better job of kind of walking that line, right? That um, they, they, they've mostly, you know, they do surface some right. content that you, would, you wouldn't expect to see or some content that looks a little bit unusual. It is technically possible for that content to surface, up, um, it's just a little harder, um, you know. I'll give you another example: um, if you go to Tumblr and search for Italo Calvino, um, uh, but by the way, I'm a little bit obsessed with this author, as you might have noticed. Um, uh, I was also going to write a blog post about this very thing, but you go on Tumblr and search for Italo Calvino, and there's kind of a whole sub-community of illustrating, um, in particular, one of his books, *Invisible Cities*, um, and kind of illustrating the the, the city, these invisible cities mm. that Italo Calvino kind of conjures up. Um, there is no way to discover that content in Google. Like I've yet to, I've yet to kind of really understand how you would construct a search query without specifically calling it out, right? Without knowing about it ahead of time and saying Tumblr, Italo Calvino, Invisible Cities. Um, that content is just not going to be there. And so, you know, to to go back to your original point, Sean, things are high quality on Google for the most part, but they still mostly look the same as each other. Um, And you can obviously find outliers, but but, um, this is absolutely a bias that exists. And I think uh, we have to train ourselves and we have to try and build more structures that do fully reward and support more independent voices and independent media and also just creating things that don't look the way that they're supposed to. You know what I mean? Um, uh, And again, I don't know what the answer is to those things.
1: Break some things, people. Yeah, I I, I think you're right. But I would... uh, if you gave me that problem, like the problem in Google that surfacing sameness, but the quality of the, the usefulness of the first page is, is good, is right. uh, I would take that for Facebook. That's not even the case for Facebook right now. Like even the quote unquote high quality stuff, I don't think is that useful or, or, you know, does good for the user. Um, and if we could get to circa 2017 Google
0: problems. Yeah, Facebook, I, so I, right would, later, I would absolutely I take that too. Uh, yeah, let's, so, so let's keep talking about Facebook, but um, let's move okay. on to a new topic. Uh, um, Sean, you got, you got something you want to talk about.
1: Yes. Uh, so th- our third story is a story in the Daily Beast by Taylor Lorenz, and the headline is Facebook is banning women for calling right. men, quote unquote, scum. So to, re- to recap, uh, the story profiles several women, mostly comedians, um, being put in what they call Facebook jail for some of their posts, which is... A post is removed, or they are banned from the platform. Um, this this also happens on, on Twitter as well. Um, but it's it's they call it examples that users have posted what I'll call strong opinions uh, about men. So posting things like uh, "men ain't shit," "all men are ugly," uh, "all men are allegedly ugly," um, have gotten
0: but th- 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 those, these people but, removed I mean, those, from the platform. Those uh, examples are it, it like almost comically. Weak example. So the point that, like, we have no problem reading them out on this podcast. Not that we have any real right. content policy, but um you know, there, there is. Men ain't shit. Like, I mean, I don't know what kind of hate speech you're used to, but um you know, this. Is, yeah, I don't know right. what hate speech neighborhood you
1: grew up in. The, the mean in
0: hate the streets of. Uh, so. Somewhere I don't know, but. Yeah. <laughs> um So, this
1: raises a bunch of issues there's a larger issue which i don't think neither you nor i are qualified to talk about which is do white men deserve to be protected a quote-unquote protected group or does it matter what gender or race you're targeting right that's i I think that's above our pay grade but i think what is at our pay grade is when we ask the platforms to police what people call hate speech right this is what can happen right they can overcorrect. They, their values may not align with, you know, our values or, 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 you know, if you're listening to this, your values, and we're trusting these massive companies to kind of be our moral police in some ways. And you can, this is a kind of hilarious example where they seem to be getting it wrong and they seem to be maybe stifling speech and opinions. From in this case, comedians who are trying to be funny. I mean, I in this example, you're talking about they're
0: basically doing violence. the exact opposite of what you would want a hate speech policing thing to do, which is um, uh, trying to trying to call out bad behavior, right? Like they're they're basically trying to shine a light on bad things that are happening, and themselves getting shut down for trying to express an opinion. Um,
1: well, right, and it it it's kind of I think it's about even handedness, right? Because I think the immediate and very fair pushback to this happening is, hey, I see much more disadvantaged people groups being harassed endlessly on the platform, and you guys don't do anything. And here I say this innocuous thing about men, and I get tossed out. And the argument behind the argument is, there is no there's no way that anyone knows as of right now to police this stuff at scale and what we're gonna get is these kind of spot checks and spot removals that are only going to make people feel that the platform is biased
0: but i I think there's a point that we're missing here and i don't i don't know the exact um mechanics of the story that you're talking about and in fact i'm not sure anyone does um but Mm. almost all of the policing quote-unquote that happens on the various big platforms, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, um, is almost all reliant on manual flags from the community. And um, it's, it's a, a comically easy thing to abuse, right? Um, you know, 4chan and the, the, the bad people, yeah. um, for want of a better word, um, are just, just in t- so much more fluent in using these tools for their own gain to be able to uh, on at scale, you know, flag these examples of speech um, to the platforms, and then um, y- you know the the platforms themselves get put in a in a tough spot, right? Because then they have to distinguish somehow between hate speech, which has a bunch of flags against it, but the flags are not real, versus real hate speech, which has a bunch of flags against it because it's hate speech. Um, uh, the and, and suddenly you're asking some. You know, very low-paid contract worker, probably not in the US, maybe not with English their first language, to to make a call on whether what they're looking at is hate speech or not, and whether the what the repercussion should be. Um, It's it's an almost it's almost a a Kafka-esque kind of bizarre um, uh, implementation of of a policing um, uh, like infrastructure. Um, And now, don't get me wrong policing content at scale is a super hard problem. Um, I do not have the immediate answers, but uh, to to think that this is the best that we can do um, is offensive. Like we have to be able to do better than this. Um, and there was an example I just saw on Twitter right. where a journalist flagged um, a, uh, a YouTube video to YouTube and they called it out on Twitter and they tagged the YouTube account uh, or the Google account and they said, hey, this is a bad video. You should take it down. And they responded, you know, the official uh, response on Twitter from Google was, "Thanks for thanks for uh, finding the video. Just hit the flag button, and we'll take care of it." And to which to which to which the the journalist was, mm-hmm. "Like, are you fucking kidding me? Uh, that's your job. You're, like, why make it my responsibility to hit the flag button to police right. your platform? Right? Like, take the fucking video down. I don't have to do anything about it. Like, you go flag the content. You go take care of it. You know what I mean? Yeah." <laughs> Um, it's like it, it, it's, it's like uh, I I was gonna make a real weird analogy, but I'm not gonna go there. But um, the the point is, it's like it's just if you tried to do that in the real world, it would be so bizarre and so uh, obviously wrong that we would just laugh at it.
1: Yeah, I'm so torn between. In a way, he, I, I encourage everyone to hear this thought out. In a way, I'm encouraged by this. Like, oh, they're paying attention. You know, they're at the wheel. And then you get sad you're like oh but that's what they're looking at or they're ignoring this right. and not this. And the story reveals that they have 7,000 content moderators and I can't find stats on Facebook but there are 7,000 tweets right. a second. So I can't imagine what Facebook's numbers are. There's there's no way they see even 1% uh, like what like I feel like efforts like this are for optics for them to turn to someone and say like, look, we're right. policing the platform and it's not having the desired effect. And I wonder what breaks. First. Yeah. I
0: think it's going to be an interest. I mean, you know, these, the infrastructural, um, abuse that happens on these platforms, right. You know, from organized, organized groups, uh, organized bad, bad actors doing things at scale um, is going to be a problem that we're going to have to understand how to deal with. Um, and I don't, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. But um, I mean, you saw this. Re- there was another story recently with uh, the FCC, right, with the uh, net neutrality debate, and there was an analysis done of the right. you know 1.6 million comments that were submitted to the FCC. Um, you know, 99% of them were uh, auto-generated by bots, and you're mm-hmm. like, oh. hmm. And 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 actually, I, I was reading the article this morning. The the comments themselves were actually not that bad. Like they'd actually done a pretty good job of auto generating these in a way that only when you did the text analysis of the comments at scale was the fact that they were auto generated revealed. You could look at any individual comment yes, so- and you'd be like, "It's not exactly a massive masterpiece of literature," but I think this comment could be legit. Um, it's a short, you whatever statement uh, in favor of one sided argument. Um, and only when you do the text analysis at scale does it reveal itself that they're that they're basically a kind of a Markov chain, um, you, you know, a piece of content that's spun uh, a million different ways. Um, and that's that's terrifying in a sense. In you know, these bad these bad actors can have that much influence on what has traditionally been left as a as a room for debate for for human discourse. Um, and that that, that problem, uh, good Lord, uh, only knows I don't have the answer to that, but we're going to have to wrestle with it. as
1: yeah, I, I, I feel like so the, the post you're talking about, the title for anyone listening is more than a million pro repeal net neutrality comments were likely faked. It's on Medium by, by, the, by, the, by the, a guy, the name of uh, Jeff Cowell. um,
0: And, and it's, it's an interesting post, if nothing else, for the amount of sophisticated work you have to do to be able to see some of these things. Right. Like this is not this is not the kind of work that your average journalist could do um it, it requires you know an understanding of of uh text passing at scale you know he talks about uh 20 gigabytes of data and, and analyzing it and writing custom code to to deal with it and you know none of that is beyond the reach of a good programmer but is certainly beyond the reach of your average citizen certainly beyond the reach of your average journalist yeah um,
1: it shouldn't be that hard right it shouldn't well, be that hard to figure out I mean
0: out. It, I I don't mind if it's hard to see these things it's it, it's it, it it's we have to understand that it's possible, I think, is is the first step towards fixing it. We have to understand right. that when we open up our platforms, that we can no longer trust that what we think is real things mm-hmm. is actually real. And that has to spread everywhere across the Internet, from tweets to Facebook updates to, to social media profiles to um, soon in the coming years, uh, you know, faked, uh, you know, generated images, videos, uh, audio. That keeps me up at night. Yeah, some really scary machine learning uh, that is is very good at just you know making making things that are entirely fabricated. You know, making somebody so, say something they didn't say, making something, making a scene that never happened, um, and that is really going to mess with society.
1: So I I, I agree. It terrifies me. I, I've seen people push for or, or advocate that a thing that's going to increase is more closed online communities that. Mm-hmm we I think we used to perceive Facebook as a closed online community and I now we I think rightfully don't. Um, And I have a hard time believing that because of almost the marketer problem we mentioned two stories ago where anytime there's an audience and reach and it doesn't even matter almost the quality of that reach, people are going to flock to it and dollars are going to flock to it. And I, I, I'm really struggling if we're going to adapt as a society for, you know, less and more quality and more walled gardens and and will that one happen? And two, is that good? It's very complicated. And I'm very curious to see how it's going to play out.
0: Yeah, I I don't know the answers either. Um, I I will repeat a thing what that you said what? earlier, which yeah yeah yeah. Newsflash: Tom does not have the answer to these deep uh, structural. Societal questions. Um, what I do think is part of the answer, and we said this earlier, but I think it's worth reiterating: is uh, part of the answer is that these platforms have a responsibility to be more transparent. The 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 first step to fixing some of these things um, is to be able to look at them um, and to be able to understand the scale and nature of them. You know, we wouldn't have been able to do that FCC. Uh, uh, analysis of comments if it wasn't possible to get those comments in the first place and uh, actually I'm not quite sure how, how he did manage to get them um, but but the fact that he was able to is uh, a testament to that you can you know you can start to see the scale and I think that that this is a theme that's going to come up again and again In this podcast because i'm passionate about it which is just we have to develop ways of seeing and ways of understanding the scale of the things that we're dealing with you have to understand the beast before we contain it and and right now we're not even understanding it right it's kind of like uh uh you know a house got burned down by a fire breathing monster but we don't even know what kind of monster it was we don't even know whether it can fly like we don't know how many of them there are and and you know now we need to we need to understand the monster before we can figure out how to you know build a bone arrow that can shoot it i've stretched my analogy you're so good you're so good at
1: analogies (laughs) i i kind of yeah i i i do the mental exercise that what if what if facebook or twitter was just like you know what we're not moderating anything let chaos reign you know we're we're letting every everything be even like i i don't think that would work i think that would make the platform unusable so then the flip side is what should they optimize for and i think you're right it's like transparency to how these things are working
0: you know well but, but we, hang on, just to go back for a second as a, as a mental exercise i'm not sure that it would make the platform unusable what if instead they said we are going to give every individual user the tools to moderate their own experience right um, which and, is like and, what and the internet in fact, itself is in fact you see twitter has started to make some some baby steps in this direction with um there's an option now to only see high quality tweets so that if you're if there's a ton of abuse directed at you um you can just you know flick a button and you don't see most of it now that doesn't doesn't solve all of the problems don't get me wrong um but if the approach was of course there'll be bad actors of course there'll be malicious content of course there will be people trying to manipulate these things at scale what we are going to do is we're going to give you a bunch of tools a bunch of experiences and a bunch of um ways to to make your experience better for you unfortunately Um, The reason they don't do that um, is because their incentive structure, right? They're they're on Facebook. To go back earlier to the idea of indie content posted on Facebook, the reason that Facebook has zero problem filtering indie voices is they are not incentivized to give you the experience on Facebook that you want. They are incentivized to give you an experience on Facebook that they want that you keep coming back to. And um, that's it. Like they can say whatever they want otherwise but that is the truth of it that's where the money flows and that's their incentive and until we can change that incentive um or until we can build strong enough voice um to to be you know to build these independent um i don't again i don't want to say regulators but governing bodies or um auditors or whatever these 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 people or organizations or structures are like let's say the fda um by the way the fda has its own problems but um you know we have these independent Bodies that can have some kind of oversight of the platforms. Until we get to that point, the only thing that's going to change is incentives, um, which, by the way, are not changing anytime soon. So, so I, I really, you know, as much as you think um, and you say that it's kind of reassuring that this is coming to the front, I, I am, I'm, yeah. I'm not yet convinced. Like it's only coming to the front because people are shouting and screaming about it. As soon as people stop shouting and screaming about it, it's going to completely go away. Um, and 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 you know, I'm not sure that that's necessarily for the better.
1: Yeah, well, I, I, I think one of my reasons to be somewhat encouraged is that people are shouting and screaming almost overly so, right? Yeah. Like, like, we're starting to blame things on Facebook and Twitter that I, I'm like starting to think are unfair, you know, right. we're almost going the other way. But I, I have a feeling this will be the def- one of the defining issues of the next, you know, half decade, decade and it's going to be really interesting where this all lands.
0: Uh, yeah interesting and maybe terrifying but we'll see
1: <laughs> what's the there's like the the chinese proverb may you live in interesting times right that's or the chinese curse or whatever
0: <laughs> yeah, um okay. anyone sure um, if it was it was it a, a yeah who knows yeah that sounds a lot like a tweet sean if i'm honest with you i think i think the chinese might have had twitter uh, like, confucius okay. tweeted that in uh in his day <laughs> that sat on um, sat okay. the toilet in in 4000 uh, ad
1: so we're we've going to go for a long time. So doing a quick let's do a quick wrap-up kind of of the themes we've noticed, which the theme of the episode is essentially no one understands how content works. So if you go to the uh, Bribes for Blogs, it's you know people not understanding the incentivization of free contributors. Uh, if you go to Jenny Lawson and the Blog S, it's we don't know how the Facebook algorithm works and surface things. And then if we go to the Facebook is banning women for calling men scum story. We don't understand what's the criteria they're applying to the things they ban. And to your point, it's the lack of transparency which bubbles up into all these individual problems.
0: Yeah, that's a, a, a great summary. If I could add one more, um, just to kind of end on a lighthearted note is, um, fuck the platforms, just start blogging, right? Um, you know, if, if you build your own little home, no matter how small it is, um, and get people to, to come visit, then you're gonna control the experience in a way that Facebook can't own. Um, it's a little, it's a little plug for your, Sean, you, yeah, you, for your blog, Sean, you know, Sean I, SeanBlander.com. SeanBlander.com.
1: But I, I, yeah. And I, I, think it's, it's, I had this, I had a, I had lunch with someone who's in, in this field, uh, yesterday and you know, he was going about like the fixes that need to be happening in ad tech and social media. And I find myself being almost annoyingly simplistic, almost like a cranky old man about it. I'm yeah. just like, Hey man, just spin up your own platform and get people to sign up for an email done. You don't have to worry about any of this stuff. Just get as many people on your platforms as possible. And you can let Facebook go pound fan. You, don't, you cannot be on Twitter. It's fine. <laughs> and um, I could sense he was getting very annoyed with me. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, I'm, uh, I, I'm a similar grouchy old man sometimes uh, when it comes to some of that advice. But it's true. It's also, I mean, you know, the new, there's some nuance. But uh, it's, it's really, if you want to build a meaningful relationship with people on the internet, you have to, you have to develop something that you own. Um, I don't think you can leave it to the platforms. Unless unless you want to be gloss, right? If you want to build something which looks like everything else and you want to chase scale, then, then right. by all means, right? Um, and, and by the way, um, I also want to give a huge shout out to the people that have made Twitter bots and who have tried to use these platforms in kind of rebellious and provocative ways. There has been an incredible, there's an incredible kind of explosion, I think, in digital art, which is actually some of which is, is becoming very, very good. And um, i am always encouraged right. by these projects that that take these platforms and and do interesting things to them in ways that they weren't designed because um that is also part of the resistance. Um you know, it feels like art and it feels frivolous and and you know kind of highfalutin um sometimes when you look at it, but 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 actually that's um th- th- there are real interesting questions and um, responsibilities that are that are exposed by by creating art um in that way. So I also want to give a shout out to those things.
1: I, I agree. And I, I love watching people press on the platforms. I mean, that's how the, and the app reply got created, right? The, the users did. That's how the hashtag got created. Right. So I, I hopefully, you know, we'll stop running around with our hair on fire one day and actually get back to doing weird things. Right. Um, one day. All right. Yeah, one day. All right. in, uh, in closing, Tom, we close every episode with one thing we like. Tom, what do
0: you like? Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm going to keep it um, a little bit focused and grouchy rather than doing something uh, lighthearted. But um, uh, ProPublica, which is an organization I'm a big fan of, that is kind of a, a transparent um, news journalism data gathering organization. And um, they led an effort um, by developing a Chrome extension, which uh, users installed at scale, and it helped them basically collect Facebook ads, um, specifically political Facebook ads. Ads. Um, and they've just released a, uh, a kind of a way to browse and, and view a bunch of these ads. And what I find so fascinating about this is it's exactly what we're talking about in this episode, which is um, the we don't have a way of looking at these things. The, the, there is no other way to gather this data rather than this kind of grassroots, almost citizen journalism kind of, uh, you know, distributed responsibility and uh, UGC approach to just kind of gather it off people's screens. Um, but the by doing so, um, and and you know, they've done it in, in, in a way that I think is interesting and provocative. And, and now you can actually go look at these things that previously, we had very little way of of looking at so um there'll be a url in the show notes but uh yeah projects.propublica.org slash facebook hyphen ads
1: and propublica is one of the organizations that have been leading the charge in discovering things about facebook and twitter's platforms about uh using crowdsourcing using month-long investigative reporting to surface things that are really affecting the way we- we view these platforms and some of the other stories about these platforms. So okay? I, highly yeah. suggest you keep an eye, if you care about this stuff, keeping an eye on ProPublica's work is paramount. Uh, um,
0: yeah. I mean, if you enjoy this podcast, uh, we don't have any sponsors yet. So in lieu of that, go, go make a donation to ProPublica. They're an incredible organization.
1: Absolutely. And so my, my thing is, um, totally frivolous and impacts nobody, but, uh, myself <laughs> is, yeah, yeah. um, I, just bought the best computer bag I've ever had in my entire life. Uh, it's called the cubic. So, uh, if you go to pingpong.com, but the G's are Q, so it reads like pink punk. Uh, <laughs> this, dot is com. The, this
0: is what the hyperlink was invented for, Sean,
1: right? Right? Uh, yeah, double double, double dot. So, basically, um, I, I was traveling and I saw someone with a really cool bag and I asked her about it and she was so excited by the design of it. She put it on the ground and showed me I was a complete stranger. And she gave me the card. And she was like, seriously, this backpack has changed my life. And I didn't believe her. And then I stumbled across one in the same town where I was traveling, bought one. And now it's my favorite thing that I own. Um, It protects like all your computer and gadgets. It's a backpack that doesn't make you look like you're seven and looks is appropriate for business uh, meetings. And you're not afraid any rain or crushing subway traffic is going to ruin your stuff.
0: So there's, there's two things that I really like about your recommendation, Sean. One is that um, I've seen this backpack in real life uh, mm-hmm. and uh, when you showed it to me, and, and it does indeed look like a very, very nice backpack. Um, but the, the second thing that I like is, is you have the audacity to, to, to put this as your pick when it is currently out of stock. Um, so, so you are literally recommending a thing that people can't get even if they wanted to. It,
1: it's only out of stock because all of our live listeners just rushed and bought it. That's the, the malcontent bump. Uh, I'm not going to apologize for my popularity, live. Tom.
0: <laughs> live, live? I mean, the NSA maybe is listening in real time. I don't think anyone else is listening. <laughs> um, All right, let's, uh, let's end it there. Um, thanks so much, Sean. This is good. Uh, this is episode three of The Malcontents. Uh, you know where to subscribe. You're already subscribing if you're listening. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, hit us on Twitter at Tom Crishlow and at Sean Blanda. Thank
1: you so much for listening to us.
0: Thank you very much.